So the book that's coming out in the autumn is called The Future of War, A History. Um, so it, it's, uh, the subtitle is critical because otherwise people would think it's just a, yet another projection forward. Um, what it does is go back, I mean, it started um, as a book about the future of war, uh, and it had an opening chapter that was going to be called The History of the Future of War. Um, and it still has a final chapter, which is called The Future of the Future of War. Um, but the more I worked on the history of the future of war as the opening chapter, the more it actually turned out to be not a bad way of getting into the various issues that still are quite uh, dominant uh, in, the, in the discussion of, of, of where's war going. Um, but it, it allows me to give it some context and do what I often quite like doing, which is to try to understand where the academic discourse comes from. Um, we tend to sort of think of ourselves as being separate from that which we are studying, yet in many ways we're part of it, uh, and we're influenced by events and trends and uh, intellectual as well as geopolitical. Uh, and this is like the, so the, one of the advantages of this approach uh, is that it allows me to uh, give the various books and trends in, in thinking about future for some context. It starts. It actually starts um, in 1870 with the Battle of Sedan, um, which the more I look at it, more seems to be a really critical moment in Western military thinking, because Sedan uh, was an absolutely classical battle that uh, began in the morning, finished in the evening, uh, upon which the whole history of Europe appeared to turn um, as... Uh, the Germans beat the French, uh, sped up the unification of Germany, established Germany as the top power. Uh, but what interested me about Sedan was, on the one hand, it appeared to confirm um, the class a classical mode of warfare. Uh, this was von Moltke's absolute triumph in terms of uh, completely catching the, uh, um, the, the French off guard, uh, and uh, even though the French had declared, declared the war, having been tricked into it by Bismarck, uh, they, uh, they, they were far less prepared than the, the Germans were. So on the one hand, it's a classical battle. On the other hand, it demonstrates the limitations of classical battle, because although Napoleon III, on the evening uh, of the battle, um, offered his surrender uh, to uh, Bismarck and von Walker, who were both present, um, and, uh, and to Wilhelm, um, but he was overthrown. The Second Republic was uh, proclaimed, and the Germans found that they hadn't actually won the war. So they were immediately in an insurgency, if you like. Um, uh, forms of resistance developed that they found very frustrating and weren't really sorted out for, for another six months. So, in a sense, you have the duality of contemporary warfare captured very uh, clearly in, in this episode, uh, and that if the Germans hadn't overcome the, friend, the, the, the French resistance, um, then uh, this could be remembered in the same way we vaguely remember the Iberian uh, war uh, against uh, Napoleon, um, uh, when guerrilla warfare uh, was first described as guerrilla warfare. Uh, so what interested me about it at this moment is, is both uh, an affirmation, which had an enormous influence on German thinking, and it still has an enormous influence, uh, about how you have a decisive battle. Um, yet it wasn't quite decisive. Uh, and that's one of the issues that, that, that comes through in the book. What interested me also was how much uh, the thinking about warfare follows very different tracks. So 
you will see in the in the text discussion of Sedan as, as, as a great battle with very little reference to the problems that came afterwards and a clear link then to the to the Schlieffen plan and and uh, and so on. So it, it, it's part of that tradition, but it's taken away from the other things that were going on that almost negated the impact. Now, the reason, well, that was one reason to start with Sedan. The other reason is that um, not long after that, in, in early 1871, a book was published, which some of you may have heard of, called The Battle of Dorking. Um, the Battle of Dorking was written by um, an army officer who later became a Conservative MP. Um, and established a form of literature that has become very influential uh, ever since. And so you still see examples to this day. And it's a form of imaginative fiction that is designed to make a political point. And what it imagines is warfare between um, uh, our country, whichever country it's being written for, and... Uh, an enemy, in this case the enemy wasn't named, but they spoke German, uh, 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 and, uh, it, uh, and this enemy is able to uh, catch us by surprise. Um, and in catching us by surprise, uh, they take away all our position. Uh, the, the, the whole position of, of Britain as a great power was upended because the Germans had found a way to cross the channel um, with, without getting um, stopped by the Royal Navy, which is quite an achievement in itself. And by the time, uh, when they land on Britain, uh, we're, so we're so disorganised that this sort of last stand um, between Guildford and Dorking, uh, which is uh, uh, an odd place for a... Uh, those of you who know it, uh, for, for, for uh, a great battle. Um, we're defeated because we're totally disorganised. It's actually an argument for better organisation and preparation of, of the British Army. Um, and this book, The Battle of Dorking, was a bestseller. Uh, it had many imitators. And in the whole period up to the First World War, there's a whole series of books... Uh, with a similar sort of theme. And they're always asking this question about what is it um, that somebody can do to us um, that will catch us so much by surprise that we'll, um, uh, that we'll, that we'll lose? Well, what is the risk of us losing? And it encourages a particular view of warfare, which is the view that... Uh, a war will be decided not only by a decisive battle, but by a surprise attack. That the surprise is the key to victory. And of course, it makes sense. If, you're, if you are going to aggress, um, it's best not to give your opponent warning that that's what you're going to do. Um, and if you can make the first blow really count, then you may save yourself a lot of bother thereafter. We're coming up to the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, uh, which is what Israel did. The attack on the 5th of June 1967 knocked the Egyptian Air Force out of the war and made possible the, the Israeli victory within a matter of days. But that's really unusual, um, really unusual, because most of the time, uh, even if you have knockout blow, apparently surprise attacks, which achieve surprise, it doesn't actually end the war. And the two obvious examples which I look at in the book are Barbarossa in the summer of 1941, the, um, the, Russian, the, the German attack on the Soviet Union, and then later that year, uh, the uh, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, and, it, and it's really interesting to just to look back at both of those uh, to see, one, the conviction that a clever military move can make all the difference, and the lack of thinking about what would happen, in the sense the plan B, what would happen when it didn't bring the results that were expected. In both cases, um, surprising in that, because in both cases, Ger Germany was still in war at war with Britain, and um, Japan was still at war with China. 
In neither case had they suppressed their existing enemy, uh, but they were taking on another one, and there's a variety of ideological reasons for that. I think the Pearl Harbor, I mean, we know why Barbarossa was, was stupid, uh, but Pearl Harbor was even stupider, uh, because at least with, with, with Barbarossa, uh, Hitler had some sense of how he might take out the Soviet Union and occupy it, but the Japanese had no idea at all about but they had no plans to occupy the United States. All they were hoping is that taking out the Pacific Fleet would demoralize the Americans so much that they might do a better negotiation than they would have done otherwise. The, the Army General, when trying to explain all of this to Hirohito before Pearl Harbor, more or less said, well, if you don't try war, you'll never know how it would go, which doesn't seem to me to be <laughs> very very good approach. Um, so... Um, behind all of this literature, um, to this day, um, there's a book called Ghost Fleets that some of you may have read by Peter Singer um, and Austin Long, um, uh, which is about a, a, a sort of Russian-Chinese surprise attack on the United States. It's very cleverly done. It's, just, it's, uh, uh, I mean, it's got 400 footnotes. I mean, they... they uh, so they try to show that everything they're talking about is really, it struck me as I read it, that actually one of the advantages for think tankers writing fiction is the only way they ever get to write about sex. Um, uh, because there's quite a bit of it in, in the, most of the time you can't really get it into um, the more referable works one tries to write. Um, uh, so fiction has a, a, other possibilities. Um, but it has the same idea. The, 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 in this case, the, the, there's all sorts. The, the, the aim is to demonstrate the vulnerability of um, of high-tech systems to interference by manipulation of their software. So the Chinese have got a, 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 a key component of the F-35's avionics uh, comes from China, and they sort of disable all the F-35s, which is entirely possible, I guess. Um, before they can be used. And the idea of ghost fleet, it's called ghost fleet, is reserve. It's, it's the old stuff that they haul out of reserve, mothballed, uh, uh, and win the war in that way. Uh, unlike the Battle of Dorking, it's quite difficult in, in this literature to, um, uh, uh, they don't really want to show their, their side losing your own side losing, the Battle of Dorking did. Uh, but quite a lot of the, of the imitators always wanted to show how somehow the national spirit would revive and, and see you through. So there's another recent book um, in the genre by General Richard Sharef, uh, which imagines a, a, a Russian attack on the Baltics, um, and which they do terribly well, but somehow we, we turn out to be better at cyber war than they do, and it's all right in the end. Uh, so the, 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 there's a tendency uh, to I mean, the, the key one in all of this is um, again a book that was written in the late 70s 1970s by General Hackett a former principal of this college um, uh, and, uh, and, a, and a, a World War II hero and uh, been a NATO commander and he got a group to produce a book called World War the Third World War which is a bestseller, also a bestseller. And in his first version, although we sort of won in the end, this was after a number of years, and after um, all the advantages had gone to the Warsaw Pact in the first instance, and then uh, he was told this was really too gloomy. So he imagined that we'd done all the right things in terms of improving defence spending and so on. So we just won in the end, um, but quite quickly, so it wasn't, didn't drag on. Um, the Amer an American version of all of this um, uh, came out. Um, I'm going to forget the guy's name, the one who did um, uh, what was it? Red Dawn Rising, Red Storm Rising. You'll tell me the name in a, in a moment, um, which Reagan liked a lot. But uh, 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 it was the same basic theme Clancy, Clancy. Uh, I knew it would come back to me, it's age. Um, uh, Clancy. And, and so you, 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 there is this literature. Now, the book doesn't just look at the, I mean, it looks at the 
uh, 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 the uh, the writings of military professionals and uh, uh, and so on as well. Um, but the the point about it is 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 a demonstration how thinking about the future of war is driven by some particular themes and particular concerns, and particularly this idea um, of a knockout blow. Um, there's two sort of big exceptions to this. Uh, one, uh, and both of them are from recent times, one is um, the period uh, of, the new, of the Cold War, where the original literature is, um, the, the fictional literature, is very dystopian. Uh, not surprisingly. I mean, they see uh, post-nuclear worlds as um, a great starting point for a miserable novel about uh, a meager human existence after all has been destroyed. The, the gloomiest of the lot, uh, in some ways one of the best, is uh, Neville Shoots on the Beach, um, which, uh, for those of you who haven't read it, uh, I mean, it's a good bit of literature. I mean, some of this stuff is, is better than others. Um, he could write. Um, and it's basically about uh, a massive series of nuclear exchanges in the early 60s. But they've used the cobalt bomb, which was never actually built. It was an idea. It's also the cobalt bomb also appears in Dr. Strangelove. And, and I think the idea of the cobalt bomb is, is if you laced your ordinary nuclear weapon with cobalt, you would get. Um, fallout that would just kill everything off. Uh, so the idea of on the beach is uh, Melbourne uh, in Australia is sort of the last bit of humanity that's surviving this, this war because everywhere else has, has been irradiated out of existence. And they're trying to work out what the situation is. And, uh, and, it, and, it's, and what's remarkable about it is just how people are getting on with their, their lives as the end of the world comes. But there's an interesting... Uh, twist between the the um, the book and the movie, also very powerful movie. And the book, when they're trying to explain what had happened, um, it's um, it's quite a straightforward. Uh, it, it, the shooter is un, understands how it could be that commanders get into this position when they've got weapons to use, when their own country has been attacked. And there's a, there's a theme of, of um, uh, people getting it wrong, confusion, thought they were being attacked and retaliated, but it was somebody else who'd caused the conflict. When you get to the movie, it just comes over, it's just presented, the origins are presented as being absolutely crazy and about miscalculation. And that reflects... Um, quite a strong view that you see about the future of war um, as discussed in the late 1950s, which is that we've created a situation in which mechanical error um, may cause, or, or human error, or human mischief, may cause the end of civilization as we know it. And that was the basis of, of Dr. Strangelove, which came from uh, an earlier novel, and also uh, Failed Safe, which was another book and movie of the same time, both based on a similar plot of um, weapons on their way, uh, and the issue is whether they can be recalled in a conversation between the President and the, uh, the United States and um, the, the President of the Soviet Union, or, uh, Chairman of the Party, uh, we're ending with sort of promises of, uh, or in failsafe, swapping a city. Uh, so that we're going to destroy one of yours, you can destroy uh, one of ours in return. Um, but in, in Dr. Strangelove, you have the doomsday machine, which is something that had been discussed. Um, and so it, it, it ends in utter catastrophe, a movie which is still hilarious. There's great sort of black humour, um, uh, but uh, obviously with a very grim underlying message. Um, the point about the nuclear age is um, what's interesting. I mean, what's interesting to me in two, two respects. First, um, it's a very good example of um, the interaction between fiction and reality. The reason the atom bomb 
was called the atom bomb was because of H.G. Wells. Um, H.G. Wells wrote a book in 1913 called The World Set Free, um, which introduced the atomic bomb. And he, it was based on a very close reading of what was known about radium and uh, 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 nuclear science at the time. Um, uh, and there's a very close interaction between uh, Wells's book and um, Leo Tillard, who was a nuclear scientist, uh, Hungarian, eventually ended up in, in the US, but in, in the early 30s was in London, and um, had read The World Set Free quite recently and was uh, hearing suggestions that you couldn't create, a, you, you couldn't uh, turn this energy into real uh, real energy uh, that you could exploit for either civilian or military purposes. And sort of uh, while he was thinking about that, in, one in the light of the other, hit upon the idea of the chain reaction, um, that if, you, uh, if enough neutrons were released um, at, the, uh, at a time, they could set in motion something that would create this explosive effect. And he, he patented it uh, in secret. And then, of course, later on, uh, Frisch and Meitner worked it out and published their papers just before the start of the Second World War. Wells is, I don't talk about him for, for, I don't want to talk much longer anyway, but Wells is an interesting figure in all this. I mean, he is the futurist of the early part of the 20th century. Um, Wells, who, who is not a great writer, I don't think, um, having now read quite a bit of his stuff. Um, it's very didactic, he's always got, but his basic message um, was that until humanity realised the horror of war, which probably needed a mega war to make them realise, they wouldn't agree to world government, which was the route to peace. Um, after uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, nuclear, nuclear scientists produced a little book which was entitled One World or None, which is exactly Wells's message. Um, what, of course, got them by surprise is that rather than uh, addressing the issue through world government, uh, which because of the Cold War didn't quite work, it happened because of the balance of terror. Now, there's debates about how important the balance of terror was in all of this, but that was the conclusion that began to be reached that uh, actually the future of war had been sorted because we really had created a situation in which a future war would be so futile that it was best not to fight it. So that was, that's one set of issues. Then, of course, you get the end of the Cold War. Uh, and I want to mention the, 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 the challenge for me um, when you get to 1990 is all of a sudden a whole train stream of literature that you, you can see, I and mean, argue going back well before uh, 1871, but uh, this whole way of thinking about future war comes to a halt um, because now nobody imagines a great power war. They're not thinking about it. What they start to think about are civil wars. Well, there is no imaginative literature imagining future interventions in the Balkans or um, in Afghanistan or Iraq. There's very little academic literature. Um, what is striking when you look at the situation the academic community was in in around 1990 is how little had been written about civil wars. Lots about revolution. Uh, academics get quite excited about revolutions. Um, and, and sort of imagine themselves leading them and taking part in them. Um, uh, uh, but there hadn't been very many revolutions, if we're going to be frank, but there'd been lots of civil wars. Um, and very, uh, I mean, there'd been some literature left over from the Vietnam period, but not a lot, not a lot of literature on the challenge of, of civil wars. And what interested me about this period is it's a period in which the academic study of international relations uh, has, has reached a sort of uh, a new stage 
of uh, particularly those interested in, in quantification, um, where it believes that it has methodologies capable of uh, addressing issues of war on a scientific basis. Now, I'm pretty skeptical of that. Um, I'm not quite sure how well it fits in the book, but I did it anyway. Um, it, it has provided a chance to look at the correlates of war um, database, which some of you may be familiar with, um, which the more I looked at it, the more despairing I became that anybody would rely upon it uh, as a basis for serious analytical research. Uh, partly because it divides, I, I just don't like the idea of slicing up wars into manageable little chunks so you can compare and contrast them rather than understanding them fully in their historical context. But also the data itself is unreliable because a lot of it's based on casualties. Um, and one, it tries to cope with the problem of um, being precise by ignoring civilian casualties, which e even with interstate wars, but certainly with civil wars, rather misses the point. Um, and uh, secondly, it's hard to count, and the numbers are very dubious. Uh, and this is relevant to a lot of the literature which has tried to make sense of the future of war by trying to identify trends. For example, the work of Steven Pinker, uh, the so-called ideas of decline of war which is sort of problematic because inevitably, as soon as somebody writes a book about the decline of war, you have a little upturn um, in the number of wars. So Pinker's book appeared just before Ukraine and Syria and so on, which rather made a mess of the trend lines. Um, as I said, I mean, there's some good arguments in the book, but, it, but it, it's a warning. So that's, um, I don't want to talk much longer, but there are some of the sort of themes and issues that the book looks at. Uh, what does it tell us about thinking about how to think about the future of war? Um, well, first, it, it, it should warn about this fixation with surprise attack. Uh, oh, <laughs> the lights have come. <laughs> I don't know whether that's symbolic or not. Um, or somebody's just lamped on the light. Um, well, I can talk anyway. Um, there we go, back again. Um, so for, first, the absolute fixation with surprise attack. And... Um, nope. Um, and... There we go. Um, uh, and the fur and knockout blows and so on. And you can see this in discussion of cyber warfare. Um, so instead of cyber war being discussed as just part of what goes on these days, uh, a, a feature of almost any conflict that, that's happening. And as we saw the other day, a feature of life, which has not more to do often with criminal activity or just mischief than, uh, than geopolitics. Uh, it has, you know, the fixation becomes with the nuclear, with the cyber Pearl Harbor, with, with a sudden crashing of, of critical infrastructure and everything grinding to a halt as a deliberate move, as opposed to um, somebody playing with Microsoft. Um, and you can see it um, uh, invariably when uh, a new technologies start to make a, an appearance. The, the, instead of recognizing that a lot of the ways that we fought wars in the past will carry on being the way that we fight wars, um, uh, and that this stuff is often adjunct, uh, they become, uh, there's a fixation with them as the new method. You can see with drone warfare as well, autonomous, autonomous vehicles, uh, which are adjuncts. They're not a way of winning wars all by themselves. Um, and they're problematic when they're used by themselves. Uh, the same way that air, air power is problematic when used on its own. So um, it's a warning against being too technology-focused, and being too um, preoccupied with the idea of, uh, of um, decisive victories. And that's important because once you've got out, out of the idea that it's easy to win a war, then maybe you're going to be a little bit more cautious about starting them. 
so uh, it's also a warning about thinking about these exciting, brilliant opening moves with fresh soldiers and brilliant technologies and so on, rather than the exhaustion down the line uh, after, a no after months or years of pointless fighting uh, when people just thinking about their own survival uh, and whether or not they can cope with any more, uh, which may be as realistic a prospect. Secondly, this uh, extraordinary comparison between the way that people think about interstate wars with, with all the sort of high-tech and um, movements of mass armies and so on, and the actual practice of contemporary warfare, which is vicious and mean, um, uh, in the weeds, if you like, it's, it, it, it's um, uh, the civil wars that, say, the Democratic Republic of the Congo or South Sudan or uh, uh, Syria now, uh, or even Ukraine, which just go on and on because nobody can quite work out how to bring them to a close. And one of the reasons for that is the stakes that people develop in, in fighting wars. Um, people make money out of wars, not just the, sort of the arms dealers, but just the local traffickers and, and so on. Um, so the, the, sort of, um, the literature on the future of war is, is a sort of a glossy magazine um, of, of high-tech kit, uh, blasting enemies um, with, with sort of like a comic, uh, Kazoom or whatever, um, uh, as the enemy is evaporated. Um, while the reality of everyday war is of mortar shells being sent from a village to another village, um, of uh, people being displaced from their homes, uh, of child soldiers, uh, it's a very different sort of reality. And people aren't very good at relating one to the other. I mean, the best predictor of where war will take place is where war has taken place in the past, because it's so difficult to bring them to um, a definitive conclusion. And the last point I'll make, which is partly to open the way for Patricia tomorrow, uh, is that the discussion of war is, has always been linked to the discussion of peace. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the two go hand in hand. And quite a bit of this book is, is looking at, at, the, um, uh, at the various schemes for peace that were developed in the, in the 19th century and into the 20th century and the frustrations with, where, with why they went wrong. I mean, it's important to note that the, quant you know, the quantitative approach to international relations was developed by pacifists as a way of creating the intellectual foundations of a science of peace. If we could just understand how war happened on a more scientific basis, then we could do something about it. So that's where it comes from. So it, these things are, are not... Uh, you can't have a discussion of war without thinking also about peace at the same time. Uh, but that's a, a, an opening for tomorrow. Uh, so on that point, I'll stop. And I think we've got a quarter of an hour or so for questions. So any questions? Uh, my PhD research is interested in how certain terrains seem permeable to recurring violence, whether it's southeastern Turkey or clear Afghanistan, Central Asia, etc. And so you said at the end that the best predictor of where war will occur is where it's sort of occurred before, if I'm phrasing it correctly. Um, could you recommend any particular sources that delve deeper into those, that sort of phenomenon, or is that just something you've come across in your research? Well, I mean, the, the, the person who did most to make that point was Paul Collier. Um, and and you know, we talked about the conflict trap, which was not particularly about terrain um, uh, as such. I mean... There's, um, I'm going to, James Fearon, um, in his stuff, um, I don't remember the guy he wrote with, anyway, in, in, in an article which I think is quite dubious in, in many ways when he talked about ethnic conflict. He did talk about how sort of mountainous regions, because they suit, suit guerrilla warfare, provided opportunities. Uh, I mean, he, his basic view was that it, was, it wasn't grievances somehow. It, you could tell a war was going to come because there were lots of unemployed young people and um, there, were, uh, uh, there was mountainous terrain, which is sort of dated in a way. I mean, it's one of the dangers of, 
of this sort of research because actually if you look at where a lot of conflict is taking place now, it's in big cities uh, uh, and certain um, uh, and that, that's one of the shifts is the move from uh, rural guerrilla warfare to urban. Um, reading a piece the other day which made the point that you've now got levels of violence in, say, Rio, uh, in certain areas, that um, the laws of armed conflict probably should apply. And the, the, that bit, there's bits of, of Latin Central America um, which are, uh, are as dangerous as uh, the middle of Africa, as dangerous as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, it's not, it's not counted as civil wars. It doesn't appear in the database as a civil war um, because it doesn't, it's not direct challenges to the state. Um, so uh, I think there's a shift in that sense and, and um, it's clearly of interest to the military because uh, you know, classical battle, the terrain for classical battle was you know, big open fields and so on, whereas uh, that's quite hard to find in the middle of Europe now, uh, of, of the sort you would find before. So it, it is one of the issues that, 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 that comes up a lot. But I think it's more um, the sort of bitterness, the legacies, the mistrust of war, um, and the fact with a lot of civil wars, you never really get a chance to rebuild the infrastructure, get the economies going, and so on, that... that uh, uh, allows them to move to a sort of bet better stage of development. Um, wars between the great powers, uh, thinking particularly of Europe, um, nobody seems to think that's a possibility today, uh, but they have in the past, Europe has been the continent that has had as many if not more wars than anywhere else. Uh, are we right to assume that wars between great powers in Europe will not happen in the future? Well, there's one underway at the moment. I mean, Ukraine isn't a great power, and Russia maybe isn't as great as it thinks it is, but um, it's a bit, there's a big interstate war going on in which um, you know, people die every day. Uh, it's sort of frozen in some ways in terms of the battle lines, but not in terms of, uh, of military activity. I mean, it's not what people have in mind, but it's, it's, worth, it's worth keeping in mind that that's happening. And that has, been, and that has led to a revival of concerns about Russian attacks on the Baltic states or whatever in which we would have to get back involved. I think it's pretty hard for Russia because uh, assuming that uh, the EU and NATO hold together and we don't all start fighting each other after Brexit and so on. Um, um, I think it's quite hard for Russia because it is in the end pretty weak. Uh, it has nuclear weapons. I think it's in quite a defensive frame of mind. Um, I mean... It, it's a good example of how you can take pretty offensive action for defensive reasons. Um, but, you know, you've got to keep in mind that Russia's economy is, uh, what, 13th in the world now or something? So it's quite hard. So if I was worrying about great power war, uh, I, there's a problem with Putin and Russia, uh, and uh, there's a handle with care issue there. Uh, but if I was worried, I'd be worried more about uh, Asia-Pacific. Um, I, think, I think, again, China is not particularly anxious for war, but it's, you know, it's feeling pretty good about itself and strong. And I think they, for that reason, they just feel if it carries on as it is, it'll become irresistible. I mean, if everybody in the region will have to go and uh, pay their respects and, and, and do give China what it wants, and the United States will steadily drop out of the picture. That's but if it doesn't, and if you have a crisis, you know, whether over uh, South China Sea or um, Taiwan or with India or whatever, I mean, there's plenty of potential there. So, I, and I think they tend to think more in terms of great power, great power. Uh, traditional realist sort of perspectives are, are quite strong in that part of the world, less so in Europe. So I'd be worried more about that. But, you know, I mean, the major power, the United States is obviously still in a class of its own, uh, 
But beyond that, other major powers uh, are, are... The differentiation is less, is, is less great. I mean, Britain uh, can do certain things. It did in 1982 in the Falklands. Uh, but it was, a, you know, it was a stretch. Whereas, you know, in the 19th century, the idea that we would have struggled and, and taken a big gamble in a war with Argentina would have been considered laughable. Um, so, you know, I think there's sort of an evening out of that. My view is still that the, um, the source of most conflict is within states. It doesn't mean to say that they uh, stay within states. Again, one of the problems with the Civil War category look at the Democratic Republic of the Congo again, is, you know, probably every neighbour has intervened, sometimes changing sides uh, in that war. And they're regional conflicts, often rather than civil wars. Um, but just they fight, you know, they, they fight each other within a particular borders. So, um, uh, you know, after Bosnia and Kosovo and Ukraine, it's hard to say that Europe is a continent of peace, that, that, that well, no conflict. But the, you know, the idea that those sort of great... Western Europe, at least. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that sort of, you know, like this whole game of diplomacy, you know, where we sort of go back to all of that great, you know, pre-First World War, I find still a bit fanciful. I don't quite see how that would happen. And we don't, you know... I mean, you know, I think we've got to recognise, I think, the importance of NATO. You know, all this sort of talk about NATO being obsolete and so on. It seems to me the great thing that NATO does is take the issue of alliance out of European politics uh, because we're all in the, the same alliance. You know, one of the most dangerous sources of war is alliance formation and um, disintegration because then that's when people really start to worry about their security and whether they can rely. I mean, there's always an issue with alliance about whether you can rely on your allies. Um, so, you know, uh, I think as long as you can keep the status quo going, um, we're probably fine. Um, but, you know, stra strange things happen. So I, you know, I, after last year, I don't make any predictions about anything. Um, but I, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're a long, long way away from that. But, you know, there's, there's parts of Europe that have caused trouble in the past where there's the, the still the fissions and the and the risks of conflict. Thank you, sir, for your insightful keynote. I have a question for you about, I mean, for me, the discussion, I very much gathered that much of the literature on the future of war was written for strategic reasons, essentially to predict or to, in many ways, identify weaknesses, potential yeah. weaknesses. So if such a novel is to be written, or if yourself are to write such a novel now, yeah. what would it try to address? Um, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not very good at the sex scenes. Um, uh, um, I think, you know, the, the, the point about this literature is it's to make a political point. It's polemical. Um, I mean, not all of it, um, but a lot of it. So I think Neville Shute was writing a novel about human nature uh, and human society, uh, which used what was known about um, nuclear weapons, or what he thought he knew, um, to create the setting. Novels like Failsafe um, were written to sound the alarm about our dependence upon um, particular, uh, on particular technologies, or on whether or not we actually was, gave too much autonomy. Some of you may have seen a movie, uh, War Game, it came out, um, gosh, it must be early part of the century, um, but was, was, all, was in the same tradition as Failsafe in the sense it was trying to show how automated processes could lead to a nuclear war. Actually, the main message people took away from it was about the way that you uh, can hack, a com uh, that a youngster could hack a computer. Uh, if you remember the story, that's, that, that's how it all starts, is, is this all... A geeky teenager, um, Matthew Broderick, as I recall, uh, get, uh, hacking into uh, this top-secret NORAD computer. So, um, and I'm not sure that's how I want to make my points, I suppose. Uh, I think it's an interesting 
thing to study. Um, but uh, one of the things you realise after you've read quite a lot of this stuff is generals who write novels probably shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, is, you know, they're, they're not necessarily great stylists. Um, uh, uh, and um, I think I'd rather stick to the genre I knew about rather than try my hand at one. I don't, you know, the, the, the characters are always uh, making a point. One of the things I did was, was look at the, um, the Vietnam literature because it was quite influential and the Vietnam movies. Um, you know, and when you look at it, it's very, one, the Vietnamese people themselves are sort of a backdrop to this. Um, and they appear as sort of victims or malevolent sort of little creatures who screw stuff up, but, but, but they're never really characterised properly themselves. But somebody did a brilliant um, uh, article on, actually on, on the novels more than movies, but it worked for the, the, the movies as well, about just how they all have these stereotypical characters within them, you know, the sort of slightly uh, professorial one who will explain why Ho Chi Minh should have had the country some time ago. Uh, the, the, the one who's completely crazed and keeps on taking mad risks. The, uh, the, the, the eccentric who's totally patriotic and so on. You know, the, 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 they have some sort of stock characters. Um, and after a while, this becomes, uh, uh, you know, you know exactly where it's going to go. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting stuff to read and to study, but by and large, I think I'll stick to the stuff I know about. Um, yeah. Thanks, I really enjoyed the, the speech. Um, you mentioned the knockout blow, um, the, the phrase, and that was a, that was that became official British, an official British fear, knockout blow in the late 30s, mm. partly at, at least in response to popular literature mm. about, about the bomber. Um, in, in reading that literature, have you found any other examples where the popular literature has sort of crossed over into actual planning in the way that it did in the 30s? Well, I mean, I mentioned the, the Wells and the Atomic... See, Wells was very influential. Um, so Wells in 1902, I think it was, had a tank, which he called a land dreadnought or something, and it was about dreadnought size. It was a massive, great thing. Um, so, I mean, a problem with a lot of Wells... I mean, Wells was not always technically prescient at all, um, but what Wells was doing there was recognising an issue. So um, some of you will be aware of the work of Bloch, the, uh, who was one of the few people who warned about the potential of the the strength of the defence and, and how the assumptions of the uh, classic offensive might turn. Uh, turn out to be completely wrong, and how the spade would be as good a use uh, weapon as everything else. And uh, you know, the reaction of a lot of the military establishment to this was, you know, he doesn't understand the, uh, uh, the, the the importance of the offensive spirit or the role of the bayonet or or whatever. Wells took Bloch quite seriously. He started to think, well, if you had trench warfare, how might you overtake? How might you deal with it? And you know, part of that was to, therefore this idea of this land dreadnought. So when people uh, started to think about tanks during you know, the early stages of the First World War, they, they, they'd read Wells. They knew these ideas were around. So though, you know, they weren't looking for him for blueprints, he, he was influencing they were, the way they thought about the issue. Um, but he was a very, I mean, he was a, you know, what we now call a public intellectual. I mean, other people wrote other books um, at the time, but his his was the one that um, that made an impact. Um, and the first talk of a knockout blow in relation to air warfare came after the Zeppelin raid. And that, uh, people, you know, people just sort of extrapolating forward, and that's where a lot of the theories of air power came from. And it's totally non-empirical. I mean, there was nothing in the popular reactions to the Zeppelin raids which suggested they were going to set mass panic in motion. And then, you know, the RAF, well, it wasn't the RAF, but it was probably, well, that's because um, 
the, the British people wouldn't, but the Germans might, you know. So, uh, so I think that I think at those periods there was um, because you don't have the ma you know there weren't think tanks, there weren't there wasn't a, a, a great civilian community around uh, addressing these issues or even necessarily a large military community around addressing these issues, the novelists often moved in um, uh, and tried their hand, especially you know, at a time of enormous scientific development and breakthrough. And, and that's why it's worth you know, some, of the, some of the stuff that was coming out of the turn of the century, the 19th to the 20th, is very interesting, uh, often with a similar idea of here is a weapon so terrifying um, that mere human beings really can't cope with it. And often it was some sort of either mad or uh, enlightened scientists who was going around the world demonstrating that war had become a futile activity by sort of evaporating warships or something so that the nations of the world came together. There's, Jules Verne was another figure who uh, scientifically was, was more on the ball probably than Wells. Um, and he did a he did a novel. Um, I don't remember what it was called. Um, it involved a figure called Robus, who it was basically it was quite interesting because it was a it was a contest between the balloonists, who believed that that was the best form of air warfare. And, you know, balloons had been used in 1870, 71, for example, um, and you know, the idea of balloons in warfare had a long history. Who thought about uh, and was it possible to have heavier than air machines? And, and this guy comes along with a heavier than air machine and uh, startles everybody. And then he leaves at the end, um, saying, The nations of the world are not ready for this. I'll come back when you're more unified. And then he wrote a much more gloomy novel in the, uh, I think just before the Wright brothers, uh, where he comes back with a machine which is sort of. You know, almost combined sea and submarine and aircraft and so on. The same guy coming back, and it's uh, it's called Master of the Worlds, I think. Uh, but now he he's going to uh, um, take over everything. I mean, it's a, it's as if he's gone completely in the other direction, and the world is saved because it all gets destroyed in a thunderstorm or something. So I thought it was a bit of a cop-out as an answer. Anyway, but, 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 so, so there's an awful lot of thinking in those sort of terms uh, around that time. And what you pick up um, is, um, in the literature of the time, some themes. I mean, just, just to, to finish off, um, this to the chap who... August Cole, the guy who did uh, Ghost Wars, is involved with some sort of writing project connected with the future of war. Um, and uh, there's a collection, they published a collection of short stories, uh, which, because they're by proper writers, tend to be sort of better um, than uh, some of the other stuff. Um, but they all have, they're, they're all very individualistic. They're all, I mean, you know, the heroes and heroines, I mean, they're, they're, they're all Ivy League. Um, um, they they all distressed authority, but are deeply patriotic. They're super bright. Um, and they're called, and, and they're complete masters of their technology, um, which, which they, they use, uh, so, you know, to, to, to take out these, these enemy systems. Um, and, you know, you can see the sort of patterns reflecting a, a movement away from mass armies to, um, uh, to super individuals. And, and, and it, uh, it struck me uh, when I was looking at some of this that actually if you look at a lot of the, lit the, the, the uh, uh, war literature coming out of Afghanistan in particular, bit out of Iraq, but mainly out of Afghanistan. It's a lot of it's written by special forces types or CIA types. Uh, the number of people who've written about how they took out Osama bin Laden is, is, is quite impressive. Uh, but, the, but there is a genre now, which, which is, you know, the, the, the guy um, going, you know, in the, you know, 
dressed up to, dressed up to, to play the part, uh, but, but, but it, it, it's almost a lone avenger sort of type rather than the mass army, as if this is, these are the sort of characters who now make all the difference. So you can, if you look at this, you can get a feel for a popular view of war. Whether or not it's realistic is, an, is another question. I don't know whether, how, how we're doing for that. Patricia, you, you've got... Yeah, you're, to me, you're always allowed this one. Uh, Laurie, just a quick question. How many of the books were written by women? Um, th there's a certain... I mean, not many is the obvious answer. Um, there's, um, there's a woman called Cicely Hamilton um, who wrote one of the first books after the First World War on, I think she's called Cicely Hamilton, anyway. Hamilton may have been in the title of the book. Anyway, she, she was a feminist activist and wrote one of the first books about the impact of air war on, on uh, uh, and was very influential. She connected with the Women's International League. I don't know, I'm not sure. I mean, um, I mean, this is a male dominated, I mean, it would be silly to pretend otherwise. That it, I mean, there, there, obviously in the peace movement uh, was different, but, but it's not true uh, amongst, even in the peace movement, there's not that many, but there were some. Um, but by and large, especially, you know, going back, I mean, the, 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 the women appear in the book, in the bibliography, if you like, um, in, when you get round to academics writing about civil war, and there's lots. Um, so, um, and some of the, some very good, some, well, this is some of the best stuff. I mean, it, it's just quite interesting that, 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 that um, uh, that's an area where you do get, but it's not, it's not imaginative fiction. I mean, well, some academic writing is, but uh, it's, um, it, it is sort of pucker academic writing. So, in that sense, you, you, they, they, they appear, but, um, by and large, no. I mean, it, it, it's a very male-dominated field. Uh, I'm going to take the discussion to ask a final question before we wrap up. Um, we've had quite a lot of questions based on the content of the talk and this new book that you're working on. And one of the other goals of this conference, as well as to uh, promote the professional development of the doctoral candidates here, so uh, I was just wondering if you could comment a bit about uh, some advice from your distinguished career to the doctor candidates sitting here who are just embarking on academic careers and thinking about war uh, through your own experience. <laughs> It's always dangerous because people might take it seriously. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, when I started, there weren't very many people in this field. You know, let's be clear. Um, it was you could get the defence academics of the United Kingdom into a room, um, all of them, and a room smaller than this one. Um, so, um, and it, 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 you know, the, the academic um, environment has changed dramatically. I mean, so on the one hand, there are many more opportunities to study this profitably and usefully uh, and effectively, um, um, which is great. But it's also it's also become more professional. Uh, with all the problems of professionalization, I mean, the good things and the bad things about professionalization, and people are more rigorous and careful now, but there's, you know, there's less room for sort of eccentricity sometimes and idiosyncrasies. Um, and, you know, the only, you know, I've been very, I've been very lucky in my career. Um, I think the only pieces of advice I would give is, is, is one, you know, if you're going to sustain a career, you've got to be interested in what you're doing. And uh, I think doing things because strategically it seems wise uh, in, in career terms. Can, you know, I know people it's worked very well for, but they often end up uh, a bit dull as a result. Um, and 
I think it, you know, I think being sustained by your own uh, curiosity and, and what really fascinates you is important, and not feeling, which is very hard to say to somebody at the early stage of their careers, um, because you know, am I publishing in the right journal? Um, am I using the right methodologies? You know, do I understand regression analyses and so on? Um, you know, fine. Uh, but in the end, this stuff is worthwhile because it's interesting and important. And uh, if you don't, you know, if, you, if that doesn't get you up in the morning, uh, after a while you'll just get bored and you won't be a good teacher and so on. So I, mean, I think actually finding the, the stuff that really interests you. Second is, is to generally be sceptical uh, of fads and fashions and... Um, and, and senior academics, uh, but be self-critical. Um, uh, you know, never be satisfied with yourself. Uh, or always, because uh, I think I, I always write for myself. In the end, I mean, it's nice if anybody else reads it, but in the end, I'm writing to satisfy myself. Um, and I think you should be always your own sternest critic. Um, not to be sort of super perfectionist, but just, you know, is this really, it's not is it, is it good enough, but, you know, is this really the best I can do? Uh, and, um, you know, am I using, let me just give you one example, just struck me, um, uh, about how hard this can be. So one of the issues I look at in the book is, um, is the shift from civilians being, or not even called civilians, non-combatants, who were very unlucky if they got caught up in warfare, um, occasionally caught, were caught in sieges, or their houses were requisitioned, or so on. And it's always a sort of a side issue, but it wasn't a big issue. And then you have this shift that starts with the colonial wars, but actually you can you know, see in the American Civil War, you can see in the German response to the resistance in after, after Sedan, you can see that right at the start of the First World War, and obviously it takes you through about the idea that um, you can really put the squeeze on a population as a way of winning a war. Now, it's a very disturbing doctrine. And um, after the Second World War, we comforted ourselves um, on the basis that uh, the strategic bombing survey showed that air raids hadn't worked. And that was a great relief. It's like, you know, showing that torture doesn't work. Uh, it may, it, 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 you know, you shouldn't torture anyway, but isn't it good to discover that it's inefficient as well? Uh, but what happens if you find it's efficient? Um, so there's a, 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 a young scholar, I his name, who's done some really I mean, meticulous in this sort of new IR school. You know, he quantifies everything and checks everything and so on. And he did some you know, brave and innovative work on Chechnya. And he suddenly decided that actually artillery suppression of, of, of civilian areas worked. And clearly he's absolutely horrified by this conclusion. Um, now, he actually may not be right. I mean, some people have challenged. But, but you know, he, you know the, the, needless to say, this goes against international humanitarian law and the laws of Russia and so on and so forth. And yet it does. But, I mean, I think it's one of the real difficulties in this area is to accept that sometimes the analysis takes you to a position you'd rather not be because we're dealing with violence, um, death on a large scale, um, and we don't want things to be as instrumental as sometimes they might be. Sometimes the bad guys win, sometimes they get away with it, and sometimes they do it by pretty ruthless methods. And in, I, I think coping with, in, in this particular area where you're dealing with violence, um, I think uh, it's always a problem of keeping the analytical part of you going while at times the emotional part of you is revolted. Um, 
uh, and you know it, it's just and, and but, you, but you mustn't forget the other you know if you there comes a point where your emotions are never engaged then there's something wrong as well so i think that that, that is a particular challenge if you're working in war studies um you know it, 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 war studies the origins of the term war the, the the department's name come back from a conversation that that uh, michael howard who's still going, our great founder, uh, was having in the 50s um, with people in the university. They were trying to think of a name. And you look around, and they have every name under the sun other than war studies to describe what we do. There's, there's conflict studies, there's strategic studies, um, there's war and peace at Columbia, but you have to have there's peace studies, um, there's international relations. But no people, and so we said, this is what we study. We study war. Let's call it that. Let's be honest and not go into euphemism. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that that's what a lot of us uh, have spent our time looking at. And it's a nasty business. And, and, to, uh, and, you, and you must never let go of the fact that it's a nasty business, while at the same time, the only contribution you could make as an academic is to be as analytical as possible. Uh, and in a way dispassionate as possible, like a, you know, a clinician looking at disease, uh, to, to, to make your, and that's how you make your contribution. So I think that's something, it's not advice, but it's just something to be aware of uh, as, you, as you work in this, that, that uh, it, it's easy to deflect ourselves from um, the nastiness. And you know, one of the things that bothers me about a lot of the uh, quantitative literature is uh, you know it's dealing in round numbers and um, it, it's very statistical and so on and, and somehow misses um, what goes on. There's a book I read where I was doing the book called, which I'd recommend, by someone called Deborah Scroggins, called Emma's War, um, which is about Sudan. Uh, but it's a real story; it's not fiction. Um, and I just found that had actually told me an awful lot more about South Sudan than lots of the other stuff I've been trying to read, which explained it, because she was a reporter. Actually, it is a book by a woman, Patricia. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's a very moving book because it's about the problem of people in war zones trying to do good and eventually overtaken by the logic of the war itself. Um, so I, you know, I found that more, had more insight in it. Good book by a good reporter than masses of the academic stuff. Anyway, sorry, I talked too long. Fantastic. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Freeman, for some sneak peek of your upcoming book and for sharing some advice that gives us some impetus to why we're studying. We're studying if ever could join me in thanking.